Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you could do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, we come to this very moment of silence, of reflection, in a world that seems to be allergic to silence and reflection. We move so fast throughout the week, from goal to goal, from project to project, from ambition to ambition, anxiety to anxiety, and we're exhausted. We have so many competing voices in our life shouting to us to achieve more. Be more, do more, purchase more. And we lose our direction. We wander. We fill our lives with more and more. And still we're not satisfied. And we come to this scripture today where you talk about true life, deep life, connected life, meaningful life in relationship with you. For some of us, we recognize we're hungry for that. We're thirsty for that. We've tasted it and we want more. 
For others of us, we're wondering if that's even worth it, if that's an actual invitation. Some of us remember a time where you seemed so close to us and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened to you or what happened to us. Some of us are wondering if we can ever believe these things and trust these things. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see that you know us in all our complexity and contradiction, in all the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it. And you love us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed. You'd fill our minds with your truth, our hearts with your love, our lives with your grace, and you'd send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. And so that's what we ask for now. Breakthrough, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. You know, I always find it's intriguing when we come to this passage that it's actually 2,000 years old, Jesus talking to his closest friends on the night he was betrayed, the night before he goes to the cross. This is often called the Last Supper Discourse. And you think if you had one final meal with your closest friends, you ask, what would you say? What would you talk about? And you get to listen in on Jesus talking about the deep life, the meaningful life, the connected life. Whenever the Bible talks about the vine, it's often talking about growth. Whenever the Bible talks about fruit, it's often talking about your character. And Jesus here, on this most important night with his friends, is saying, in me, you have tremendous potential to become fully alive. I mean, this is the question that everybody in our community is asking whether or not they would say it that way. How do you transform into the truest version of yourself? In a world that seems so fleeting and so fast-paced, how do you put down deep roots and have meaning no matter what happens? In a world where the news headlines and the CDC guidelines shift every single week, you can't see around the corner, you can't predict the future, how do you go through a world with that much uncertainty? Instead of getting tossed to and fro or becoming cynical and bitter, actually become buoyant, flexible, hopeful, resilient. Or maybe we'll ask it in different ways. How can a selfish person become unselfish? How can a controlling and manipulative person become someone who liberates others? How can a cowardly person become courageous? How can a whiner become a giver? How can a worry a worrier become a rock? See, if you go to the bookstore, I, I think Verbatim Bookstore, one block away, is the best bookstore in our city. And if you go to that bookstore, you will find shelf after shelf of books that will address these very questions. And they generally fall into three categories. First, there's the mechanical. Here's the technique. These are the three steps. These are the five pillars. This is what you need to do in order to have this deep life of meaning and connection. Mechanical. The second one is in the morality section, where it discusses virtue and encourages you to be more virtuous. And then the third is what I'd call the magical section, where there's some superpower out there in the ether that you need to tap into. And Jesus comes to you and says, it's not mechanical. It's not merely virtuous. It's not merely some power out there that you need to tap into with some new age spirituality. But you can actually find this life to the degree that you are connected to me. 
because I'm the source of it. This scripture comes and asks us this morning, when you consider your life, what are you rooted in? What's the nutrition? What what are the nutrients, the fuel that actually drive you and empower you in your life? And it reminds us that this process of growth is organic. It's not mechanical. So let's just consider in the time we have the vine, the fruit, and the pathway to this flourishing growth. First, the vine. The source. Where all the energy comes from. Where all the nutrition originates. And he says, I am the true vine in verse 1. You know what that insinuates? That there are other competing vines. There are lesser vines. I think he means this on more than one level. On one hand, if you look at it in your own individual life right now, you can identify there are competing vines that promise you, I will be your source. Are you aware of what that competing source is in your life? Your career will promise you in many ways that it will take care of you. It will make you secure. It will give you an identity. Listen, I'll tell you, one of the toughest times of my pastoral ministry and of my personal life was the first six months we were planting this church where I did nothing but meet with people all day, but we had no church, no meetings, no gatherings. For the first time in my adult life, I was a pastor without a congregation and a preacher that doesn't give any sermons. I had nothing I could point to to say, I belong in this world. I matter. I'm producing something. Because your career will promise you that you can have meaning that you can have identity, you can have security. The problem is your career will never lay down its life for you. Your career will demand that you give your life for it if you make it that central source. One of my good buddies who lives on my block named John was telling me about a conversation he had with his boss. As John was advancing in his engineering career, he was moving up in the firm, getting promotions, and his boss pulled him aside and said, John, I'm going to give you some advice that my boss gave me. Here's what you're going to do. You're early in your career. You're a rising star. Your trajectory is high. You have young kids at home in a marriage. Here's what you do. You're going to give yourself to this firm. You're going to work hard every day. You put in all the billable hours and you're going to make a lot of money. That's going to enable your spouse to stay home with the kids and put the kids in the best private schools and move your family into the nicest houses in San Diego. And you do that really hard for 30 years. And then you retire. And you get a membership at the country club. And you enjoy all that you've amassed. And John astutely says, oh, okay, your boss gave you that advice. How's it working out for your boss? I kid you not, the response was, hmm. Actually, he died of a heart attack a year after he retired. And John said, if it didn't work out too well for him, maybe I'm not going to follow this great advice. Now, I say that with respect because it is a true story. I also say it because it is a common story. You make your career the source and it will ultimately fail you. We make romantic relationships the source. I counsel so many friends and people in the neighborhood who think that if I could just get that person, then finally I won't be lonely. They could meet my needs. They could complete me. And let me tell you, 
That is a burden that no human being can possibly fulfill in your life. If you try to make another human being the one who completes you, fulfills your needs, and makes you whole, that is not the pathway to joy, hope, or connection. It's the pathway to codependency and manipulation, alienation, and resentment. Now, I want you to note, what I'm not saying is that your career is bad and you should forsake it, or relationships are inherently evil and you should not pursue them. Not at all. I'm saying they make a poor source of a true vine in your life. We turn to wealth that tells us that if we had more, we could be more, we could do more, we can achieve more, we can go on more expensive vacations. Now, about every year, some, you know, Stanford or some other university does a new study asking the question that we all ask, does more money make you happier? And the answer is always yes, to a degree. So usually it's somewhere along, you know, in relationship to you want to be above the poverty line. The idea is if your stomach is growling so loudly because you're hungry, you can't hear anything else in your life, you're not happy. If your kids need braces but you can't afford it, nobody's happy. You see, you get the point. But once you're able to afford the basic necessities in life, more money doesn't make you happier. And you see this as you think, if I just had more money, I can go on a better, you know, a better fill-in-the-blank vacation, better car, better whatever. And what you realize as you're driving that really nice new Mercedes AMG around the turns and you realize I'm still just stuck with myself. You realize you've actually created a new set of more expensive problems often. Wealth is not a bad thing. Wealth is a tool. But it makes a poor true source. And I wonder if this is why Jesus, wherever he went, he would say things like, I'm the bread of life. And if you're hungry, come to me, and you will never hunger. He'd say things like, I'm living water. I'm the water of life. And if you're thirsty, come to me, and you'll never thirst again. He would say, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I think he gets in front of you and me today and says, what are you making the vine of your life? And what would it look like to find me in the center? The interesting paradoxical mystery of this is that when you find him as the source in your life, you don't lose all these other things. In fact, they begin to take their true place in your life. You don't need to squeeze the life out of them or make demands on them, but you can appreciate them and be grateful for when they're there, and you can still be hopeful and endure when they're not. He says, I'm the true vine. I, th there's another layer that's operating here as well that everybody in the original audience would have recognized. When he says, I am the true vine, he's speaking to people in Israel. And the vine was also always in the Old Testament a picture of the people of Israel. In the Jewish tradition, it was a picture of the people of God. God had brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it in the promised land. We read in Psalm 80. Later on we read, it had been ravaged by wild animals and need to be supported and replanted and protected and nourished. In Isaiah 5, he talks about the vineyard of Israel that has produced wild grapes instead of great edible grapes that give nutrition. 
because they had forgotten their identity as the beloved people of God. They had forgotten their calling as those who were called apart to be a blessing to all the nations. And now Jesus is standing here and saying, I am the true vine. He is the true Israel. The one on whom God's purposes are now resting. And the shocking part is, he says, and to the degree you're connected to me, you are a child of that promise. You are an adopted member of the family that has that identity of beloved child of God. You have that same calling to exist, not just for the good of yourself or for your own existential moment in this world, but you exist to bless the nations, to face outwardly toward people who are different than you, to bring them in. There's a new calling altogether. He's the true vine. And he says, when you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. Okay. Oftentimes, when the Bible mentions fruit, it's talking about character. There's a place in Galatians chapter 5 where St. Paul, one of the early church planters, is writing to this urban church. And he says, you, as you're included in Christ, will be filled with his spirit. He's not just around you. He's not just before you or above you or behind you. He's within you. And when the spirit of this God who created you dwells within you, you will bear fruit. And it says you will have the, spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And it lists them off. You'll be marked by love. We'll get into that in a moment. You'll be marked by joy. A joy that is nothing less than happiness, but it's a lot more than happiness. Happiness is dependent upon your current circumstances. So when the stock market's up, if you're an investor, you're happy. If it's down, you're sad. Joy is rooted in something else that can never be revoked or removed. It's far more sturdy and far more stable because you can say whether the stock market goes up or down, God is in control of my life and will never leave me or forsake me. So I'm going to make it through this. That's joy. That's why the same apostle Paul could write from prison, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. He had to repeat himself because they probably couldn't believe their ears. There's a deeper source of joy in your life that goes beyond your circumstances. The fruit of the Spirit includes peace, which in the Hebrew Scriptures has a multitude of facets, as it's the Hebrew word shalom, which talks about the human state of flourishing for which God created us. So it's not just peace where you're in the absence of conflict and there's no war and no fight. It includes that, but it's far more than that. It's being in right relationship with God and knowing that you're loved. It's being in right relationship with yourself, comfortable in your own skin, able to look the world in the eye, stand tall and walk the earth a free person. To be at peace with each other. You'd be a person of patience. A person that can slow down and take a breath when the world is rushing at you, like the hyperdrive scenes in Star Wars. And you say, I believe that God is at work here. And so I can wait for this to play out. I can have perseverance. I can have what the Bible calls long-suffering. You don't give up right away. You're sturdier. But you're not sturdier because you're saying, I'm good enough and I'm strong enough and gosh darn it, people like me. You're sturdier because you're saying, he's promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. And he's in this even now. You're marked by kindness and generosity. The opposite of generosity is stinginess. Hoarding, greed, 
And that promises something. It promises that you're going to be okay. You're going to have enough. The world is a zero-sum game. There's only so much pie. If they get a bigger slice, it means you get a smaller slice. And the gospel comes and says, not at all, not at all, not at all. He is the God of abundance and mercy, of provision and care. And so you can actually give your resources away in ways that are costly and sacrificial. It's marked by faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Instead of being blown about by every current and every wave and every impulse that comes from within, you actually have a different north star, a different compass. Now here's what I want you to notice. And you'll hear this now. I'm not trying to make you a sermon critic, but let's be honest. You already are all sermon critics. That's one of the hard parts of my job. I preach love to you, and you just judge me all day long. It's fine. Being a pastor, you have to have a big heart and thick skin. I signed up for it. But just note this. Some, you'll hear some sermons or some interpretations talk about the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's not plural. It's singular fruit of the Spirit. And here's why that matters. It's not like there are all these different options out there, all these fruits, and then each individual follower of Jesus decides to major on one or include one and then go, but I didn't have the self-control piece because I've got this other part. No, no, no. It's all part of one fruit. Or if I can mix metaphors, it's all part of one diamond. That as you turn it, every facet has a different aspect of the life of the Spirit. So to be a Christian means you don't pick and choose between these virtues to pursue and embody, but you pray for them and embody them all. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. There's a lot of grace and very much forgiveness. But God is a God of transformation saying you have tremendous potential to bear fruit. Now that's on the individual level. But remember, Jesus is not having a pep talk with just one friend. He's talking to a group of people. So the you is actually plural. And he's saying you will not only bear fruit individually, but you as a community will bear something new into this world that's beautiful. And I think that's where he gets into the word love. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. And then he defines love. Turn on any radio station in San Diego, you will hear some song about love. Go to any bookstore and you will see books on love. Go to your Netflix profile, you'll see movies about love lost and love gained and love pursued. We traffic in the word love, but nobody agrees on what it means. And in general, we define it as love is that groovy feeling you get from somebody else when you're around them, or love is the ways that you can't live without them, and they do things for you you could never do for yourself. And in all of that, love is primarily referenced by what the other person can do for you. That's not love. Technically, that's lust. Lust is always asking, what can I get from you without giving? Love always, as Jesus said, greater love has no one than the one who lays down their life for another. Love always gives. Love always pours out. Love always sacrifices. Love always foregoes your preferences on behalf of somebody else. And he says, when you as a community, when we as Renew Church love each other like that, we become a sign to the watching world of the power of God in our lives. We become a contagious epicenter of self-sacrificial love that not only transforms us, but it transforms society. 
This is why if you trace back to the educational system or to hospitals or to orphanages, they're almost always rooted in some group of followers of Jesus that said we need to look out for other people. We need to educate them well and care about their mind. We need to take care of people that don't have caregivers and guardians. We need to help heal up people's broken bodies because the church goes out to heal. I would say here that it is both a hospital for sick and broken people like you and me to be healed up and a launch pad to be sent out in mission and ministry to care for others. An entirely new fruit. Now, if I just ended the sermon there, I would, just, I would wager that's not actually good news yet. Okay, because I've told you that there's a vine and I've asked you where are you getting your source, where are you getting your nutrients. I, we've painted a picture of this individual virtuous life and a communal self-sacrificial love. But if you just left and all I said was go and try to do that because Jesus said so, you should run because you will be exhausted and resentful by the end of the day. The whole point of the way of this flourishing growth is not Jesus saying, here's the list, now do it. Remember, it's organic, not mechanical. And that organic process hinges on the word remain. Remain in me. Remain connected to me. Abide in me. What does it mean to remain connected to Jesus? To draw your life and nutrition and fuel from him. It's an organic process. I'm going to mix, mix a little more metaphor and go from the plant world to the animal world. But I think one of the most fascinating animals is the flamingo. For some obvious reasons. You know, the way they look and the way they stand and all of that. But do you know that the reason why flamingos are the color they are, most of them are pink, some are red and some are orange. The reason they are the color they are is because of the food they eat. So they, they eat these little shrimp, and they eat algae, and they eat these larvae, and that's really disgusting. But the things they eat, when processed by their body, make them the color they are. It's an organic process, right? It's not like you go and you spray paint a bunch of flamingos pink. They're pink because of what they've been eating their entire life, and it changes the color of their external life. It's changed from within. And Jesus is saying, you need to be connected to me so that you have my very DNA, my very life, my very character flowing to you and then flowing through you to others. It's internal change, not external force. Internal change, not external force. It is not a picture of, here's what healthy plants look like in God's garden and they have all this fruit, so go and start pasting fruit on. No, no, the action step is not do more, it's remain. Stay connected to me. Put your roots down into me. Trust me. Remain connected to me. That's the action step. It's, not in, it's internal change, it's not external force. I'm going to give you an example of this. And um, this example was first shared years ago by a, a pastor mentor of mine, but by now I've been ministering and counseling people for 20 years. I have plenty of these stories myself, so I feel like I can make it my own. And in this, in this um, story, and this is going to be the story of a husband and wife who come to me for counseling. It's not one couple. It's an archetype of themes of couples I've seen over two decades. Whenever you tell a story like this, you either have to choose that it's going to be a story about a dumb husband or a dumb wife, this one's going to be about a dumb husband. There's plenty of both. Don't worry. Myself included. 
And the husband calls and says, my wife's about to leave me. You know, we've gotten into our final argument. She can't take it anymore. She said she's going to leave me. I can't believe it, but she said she would actually go, come in for counseling. Would you talk with us? And I say, sure, come on in, we talk. And she begins with a list of things. This is what he's been doing for years and years. He's domineering. You don't listen to me. You don't put me first. You're emotionally unavailable. You don't let me in. And sometimes the husband will say, my goodness, I, I've heard these things before, but I had no idea that it grieved you this much. I'll change. I'll transform. I'll be different. And usually one of two things will happen. Either it happens as he's saying, you know, I can't, I can't lose my wife. I'm so afraid of what life would be like without her. I can't imagine life without her. And so one of two things happens. Either A... At the point where he's pretty sure that she's back to stay, he reverts back to the way he was before, and resentment ensues. Conflict re-arises. Or, B, he stays changed, but he becomes more and more grumpy, more and more demanding, more and more entitled. He's saying, I have changed all of these things for you, and what are you doing for me? And she ends up resenting him anyways and leaving. See, the first one's fear. Fear is an excellent motivator in the short term. He says, I'm afraid of losing her. I'm afraid of what life would be like without her. I'm afraid of starting over. I will conform. I will transform. I will be different. But after a while, it fades away. The first one's fear. The second one is pride. He says, I'm not going to be like all those other bozo husbands out there. I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to be a good man. I'm going to be a good dad but it only lasts so long. It only goes so deep. Long term, there's no real change. You see, and here's why. Because fear and pride lead us to do all the things that we're trying to change. If you use fear and pride to change the things in your life that are rooted in fear and pride, you're merely applying duct tape to something that's falling apart, and it will eventually come undone. Or to use another metaphor, if you want to bend and shape metal, there's a few ways to do it. You need to heat it, you need to melt it, so that when you forge it and it shapes, it becomes entirely transformed and will remain as strong as it was before. If you do not apply heat before you bend and shape that metal, only one of two things will happen. Either A, it will bend as long as you're holding it, but as soon as you let go, it will snap back to its original shape. Or B, it will break. And Jesus says, to abide in me is to not be motivated by fear or by pride. But it's to let my great love, which lays its life down on behalf of you and this whole world, melt your heart so that the metal of your soul is actually transformed. So you're in a new shape altogether. And that happens slowly. That happens over time. But he is at work. You know, one of the ways that, and I, I don't do this, I've never done this to somebody individually, so just bear with me, but a diagnostic question to see if you're really getting it, if you're really understanding Jesus, if you've really become a Christian, if this has made its way from your head down into your heart, is if I was to say to you, are you a Christian? Christian friends, and how would you answer? 
If your first answer is, yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I go to community group at every Wednesday night. I give 10% of all my wealth. I serve on Sunday and welcome other people. Look at all of these things that I've been doing for God. Of course I'm a Christian. In that moment, it tells me that you're not understanding this. On the other hand, if I'm able to say to you, are you a Christian? And your answer is, I am shocked and surprised and amazed, but I actually am. I'm as surprised that I'm a Christian as anybody else. But it's not because of the things I've done. It's because I am amazed at the way that God has loved me through my entire life. The ways that God has laid his life down for me in Jesus. Has risen on my behalf and even now promises to hold my life. Even though my life is two steps forward and one step back, he will never leave me. And that's why I know I'm a Christian. That tells you that you're starting to get this. It is the fire of the gospel that will melt your heart and will transform your life because it's an organic process, not a mechanical one. There's another piece where he talks about what this life of growth will be like. It will include cutting, pruning, pulling off parts of the plant that if you were in control of the garden, you would leave. But his father's the master gardener. Florence, my wife, does pretty much everything well. I live with her. I know. We've been married 16 years. I'm not inflating words here, okay? I'm not saying she's perfect. I'm saying she's perfect for me. But she does all things well. One of the things she does really well is tend the garden at our house. In our current home, if I'm sitting outside for long enough, at some point a neighbor will come by and compliment some part of the garden, especially the roses. And at the right time of the year, which I know not when, Florence goes out there and she cuts this beautiful, blossoming rose bush down to all, a little stumpy nub in the ground. And I'm saying, what have you done? You've killed the thing. And she says, just wait. And if you come by our house today, you will see a huge pom-pom of roses growing on this beautiful plant because she knows where to cut so that there could be growth in the right season. I swim with a group of friends, one of, a couple of them are retired Navy SEALs. And I was just talking with one of them the other day, and he was telling me about a book he's reading. It's kind of in the Stoic Greek philosophical tradition, and it's the idea of embracing hardship in your life as an opportunity. So he talks about going to the Naval Academy and having four finals on one day, and instead of saying, woe is me, I have so many classes, this is so hard, you say, I'm actually getting smarter. This is going to build me up. He said, I joined the Navy SEALs and I'm going through SEAL training and we're not sleeping, we're running and we're swimming. And instead of saying, woe is me, I can't take it anymore, I say, I'm getting stronger. This is building me up. And I think Jesus comes and takes that to the next level as he says, any pruning in your life. Now I want you to note, he's not saying, I'm going to arbitrarily cause pain in your life because that's, that's just what I do. He's not saying that. I think he is admitting the, just the honest admittance that this life will include pain. This life will include loss. But when you go through it with the master gardener, when you go through it connected to the vine, those losses don't have to be the final word. You can actually have hope as you don't minimize it and you don't escape it. You don't let it run you over. But instead you say, God will see me through this. God will one day transform even this. And so I can trust him. So friends, what's the vine? What's the true source of life in your, 
in your own existence now? What sort of fruit is your life producing? That might be an interesting question to ask a close friend later today. What would you say is the thing my life produces? Run to him. Remain in him. Trust him. Not only for your sake, but for the sake of the world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray that you would connect us more and more to the true vine. That you would help us to put our roots down deep into you, to trust you. And so now, would you convince us of your great love for us? Would you give us a pathway to remain in you as you go on, Jesus, to direct your people toward your word and toward your relationship? May we be a people who study your word and scripture as we do on Sundays and throughout the week. May we be a people of prayer and conversation and relationship with you, not only when we gather together, but in our own personal lives every day. But ultimately, Lord, the simple request is that you would help us to abide in you, to bear this rich fruit, and to have true life. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.